Something great's going to happen today. I can already sense that. And I trust God's Spirit will work in your heart. Um, let me ask you to do some things with me first. And we're spread out from side to side, so that's cool. So I'll just really make sure I get some good attention here right parallel with me. Don't worry. I want to ask you to clap uh, with me and applause. Can you do that? That's good. Thank you very much, right? No, it's, I'm just kidding. That's good. Now, I want you to clap in rhythm. You can do this, Ed, I promise. Okay. okay. You to clap in rhythm. You ready? Okay, that's good. Yeah. We get a little sway, a little, you know, we can do a little of that, right? Now, I'd like for you to shout with me. Okay? I want you to shout, Hallelujah. Ready? Hallelujah. Shout, Jehovah is mighty. Jehovah is mighty. Shout, God is great. God is great. What you just did was obey Psalm 47 and you just worshiped God. Take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 47. Let me show you exactly what I mean and how just in that simple exercise you obeyed God. Psalm 47 is where we're looking and as you're turning there, let me just kind of bring you up to speed about why we're at Psalm 47. We began a few weeks ago a series entitled Worship 101, Living a Life of Praise. And we're going through selected psalms and investigating how the, the Hebrews, the Jewish people, lived their life day by day, moment by moment, how they lived it unto God as a, as a lifestyle of worship. And since the psalms is their Jewish hymn book, so to speak, their collection of of worship songs, we're studying these psalms to see just exactly what brought them to a place of worship. Why they lifted their praise to God. And, and of course, we, we explained to you that the psalms are divided into five different books. So out of the 150, there are five different collections. We're taking one psalm from each section of, that, of those books and teaching through over the next several weeks. And so this morning we come to Psalm 47, which really, in a nutshell tells us why God is the only one worthy of our praise. Now, on a factual note, the psalm was written by an Old Testament worship band uh, known as the Sons of Korah. Uh, and they kind of got together and jammed for Jesus. And they also wrote many psalms. And this is one of the ones that this band of the Jewish nation wrote. And it starts off in Psalm 47.1. Look at your Bibles. It says, Clap your hands, all you nations. You just did that, didn't you? You obeyed God. I want to say at the very beginning, and I'm sure all of you here have no problem with this, but I just want to say to you, I love it when you clap in church. I'm fine with it. Go for it. Do it all you want. You know why? Because it's very biblical. We're giving God our praise. You're not clapping for a person. You're not clapping for me or the person up here. And you're giving your praise to God. So let Him hear it. Let Him see it. Then it says... Shout to God with cries of joy. And you did that as well. You shouted to God. You clapped your hands for God. Why were the Israelites to do that? Look at verse 2. How awesome is the Lord Most High. Not just the Lord High. Not just the Lord. And there's a reason he says this phrase. Look at your, look at your Bible. Verse 2. The Lord Most High. Understand that in the Hebrew culture and in that Old Testament situation, there were many little G-gods. You with me? 
There were those in Egypt. There were those in Philistia. There were several nations who had their God. And you know what? When this phrase was mentioned in many of those Jewish songs, the Israelites were saying, listen, nah, 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 nah. our God is the Most High. He rules over your gods. He's just not one of them. He is number one. First place. Let me show you what I mean. Watch this. How awesome is the Lord Most High, the great King over all the earth. And why is He awesome? And why is He the great King? Well, verses 3 and 4 really are the, are the, the climax, the pinnacle of this psalm. If you have a pen, you ought to circle verses 3 and 4. Make one big circle around them. And this is why He's awesome. This is why we clap our hands and shout. Psalm 47.3 Because He subdued nations under us. And He's speaking here about the Israelites. Peoples under our feet. He chose our inheritance for us. The pride of Jacob whom He loved. Let me just give it to you in a couple of words to understand. You know what, what Jehovah God did for the Israelites? He defeated their enemies and delivered their land. Just jot that down. This is really the, the crux of the chapter. That's why we clap to Him. That's why we shout to Him. And in that culture... They were calling all of the Hebrews to do exactly that. Why? Because He subdued their enemies. He delivered their land. He, In a word, let me give you a word we're going to use. He redeemed them. In fact, you can't do this probably because you don't want to write all over your Bible. But if I were you, and I've done this in mine, right under 3 and 4, I would write one word. Write redemption. This is a great Old Testament verse that talks about our word redemption. His redemptive power and plan make Him the only one worthy. It's, the, it's, it's the, the apex of the chapter and it gives us the reason He's worthy of our, of our shouts and our applause. Now, let me talk to you about a couple words here, first of all. The word subdued is a pretty cool word in Hebrew. Um, I won't try to say it for you, but let me just give you what it means. It's not like uh, you played a game and you got more points and so you're the winner. It's like you put the you put a submission hold on them. Now, I think back to when I was a kid and I watched uh, wrestling. Can you say that word with me? Wrestling. Don't get marked granted. It's not wrestling. See, I wrestled in high school. This is wrestling. And all these men about my age are grinning and nodding because you remember, don't you? Yeah, the ugly uniforms, the fat bellies. Yeah, you remember, don't you? You know it. Hey, you know what? And sometimes they'd be in the ring and, and of course, it's, it's all fake. You know that. Just in case, guys, you weren't aware of that. Don't be too upset and disappointed, but it's pretty much fake. And they're wrestling and they're... And then one of those guys will get another guy and he'll put him in some hold. And, and I remember the old, some kind of wrist move. And he'd have his wrist up here and he'd have his foot on top of him. And, and then the guy on the floor would, would pat the mat and the ref would say, it's over. And they'd ring the bell. And then I always wondered, man, that's a lot of pain. Just from one little finger move, you know. I never figured all that out. But he would cause the, the one wrestler... To submit. Cry uncle. Cry mercy. He had his foot on him and head him down for the count. That's what's going on here. It's not like, okay, we're in this competition and, and I just barely squeezed by with one last free throw at the end. No. I mean, God Almighty, Jehovah, the great God of all the earth, has taken Israel's enemies and put his foot on them and they're crying uncle. They're submitting. He had to do that, by the way. To bring his people out. Do you recall? He began in Exodus. The Egyptians had him um, cornered, conquered, enslaved. God brought a man named Moses on the scene, didn't he? 
We'll talk about that in a minute. But he brought his people out. So he subdued the rooms. And it says here, he, people's on our feet. Then verse 4, he chose our inheritance. That word chose is awesome. It means, uh, it, it's impossible to explain, Vince. And I want to make sure you understand this. Vince asked me this week, he said, Todd, do you get predestination, election, and, and how God chose us? And we're going to talk about that. And I'm like, Vince, I don't get it at all. He said, you don't? We've got to talk about that. I was like, Vince, if you do get it, we've got to talk about that. You know, we're laughing about that. And this is the same concept in Hebrew that Ephesians uses when it says that God chose us. He predestined us. Now, we'll get there in a minute. Hang with me. But this word means to, to, to know way ahead of time and to pick out and to, and to plan even with all the obstacles against God. This goes back to what he said to Abraham. He said, Abraham, I will make of you a great nation. And through you, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. God foreordained. He planned. He chose Abraham. And then He worked through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses to deliver what? The Bible says here an inheritance. You know what that inheritance was? Technically, and of course in our text, it refers to the promised land in the Middle East. Specifically, the capital of that, Jerusalem. That is where God lived. That is where the, the Jews were headed, that promised land. There are several verses we'll look at in a minute that talk about God's inheritance and His promise to them. But that whole process of God subduing the nations, bringing His people out, and then delivering the inheritance that He promised even back to Abraham, that whole process is what we know as redemption. In essence, He's saying in verses 3 and 4, listen, I'll tell you why we clap for God, why we shout to God, why He's the Lord Most High, because He has taken Israel and redeem them to Himself. That makes Him the only one worthy. Now, I'm going to show you specifically some instances in which this happened. There's, there's a couple of portraits here. One is in the Old Testament. Look with me and turn to several verses. So if you've got your Bible, you might want to loosen up your knuckles and let's get ready to turn to some, some passages. Look at the Old Testament portrait of redemption. Start back at Genesis 14. Genesis chapter, actually it's verse 15. It's God's covenant with Abraham. Genesis 15, and you'll be turning quickly here. You may want to watch the screen behind me and gather some of these verses for study later this week. But Genesis chapter 15 is when God says to Abraham, like I said a minute ago, He calls Abraham and He makes a promise to him. That He, look at verse 7. He said, I brought you out of Ur to what? To give you this land to take possession of it. There it is. There's the promise. There's when God chose these people and their inheritance. Well, we move on to the book of Exodus. And by the way, as you're turning to Exodus chapter 6, I explained to you that, that the Psalms mirror the Pentateuch. You recall that one of our first first weeks. I believe this Psalm here really mirrors the book of Exodus. Because it talks a lot about deliverance and about redemption. Look at Exodus here, chapter 6. About verse 8. You want to read several verses here, but let me just focus one for you. Exodus 6, 8. God is speaking to Moses and He says, I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. He didn't say there, I am a God. He didn't say there, I think I can accomplish this. He said, I am the Lord. I'm going to deliver the inheritance I promised Abraham. Well, Pharaoh wasn't quite on the same page, was he? took him about ten memos. The last one, obviously, a very horrendous and tragic plague. Well, the Israelites left and came to that 
that monumental mass of water. We're history. It parted. They walked through. And then the Egyptians are hot on their tail. And they're coming after them. And I think this is referenced here in Psalm 47. And then God brought the waters right over all the enemies of Israel, didn't He? He subdued the nations. He conquered them. He set them out on a course. Exodus 15 is the, is the victory chapter after God drowned the Egyptian army and delivered them, redeemed them. Look at Exodus 15. He continually leads them to this idea of inheritance. Exodus 15, 17. He says, this is actually a, a victory psalm. It says, you will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance. There's that key word. The place, O Lord, you made for your dwelling. The sanctuary, O Lord, you, your hands established. Here it is. He promised them something. He chose Abraham. He subdued the nations. He's delivering what He said He would give them. Look at one last verse in this Old Testament picture of redemption. Joshua 14, verse 15. Just slip a few pages to your right. And notice the last phrase of Joshua 14, 15. It's a simple phrase that says, Then the land had rest from war. So all the way from Exodus through Joshua, you see God working His redemptive plan. Watch this. Physically. It's a physical picture of redemption. God proved He was the only God. He conquered those Egyptian gods. He was mightier than, than other gods around, at least in their minds, you know, the pretend gods. He proved Himself to be victorious. And so physically, He actually brought the Hebrew nation out of Egypt, crossed those waters, and into the Promised Land. Isaiah 47. Look there again at these verses. Isaiah 47. He subdued nations under us, peoples under our feet. He chose our inheritance, the pride of Jacob whom He loved. That's why we praise Him. That's why He's awesome. That's why we clap. I want you to see the Old Testament portrait of redemption, first of all. And I think these Israelites had that in mind as they sang this song, as the, band, as the sons of Korah were, were jamming for Jesus, and they're singing about how great God is. They're thinking back to Egypt. They're thinking the stories their grandfathers and fathers told them. They're thinking about how they were led out and how the land was theirs. And by the way, they're thinking that today. I was studying the word inheritance this week. And in Hebrew culture, the definition, the physical definition of the word inheritance means something given forever. And there's great wars in the Mideast right now. There is intense battling over property. There's great arguments over land. And there's many good people trying to, to figure out a peace treaty. I don't think there'll ever be a peace treaty till one day what God promised in Genesis is fulfilled. When Israel has their complete inheritance, their complete promised land. I tend to think that will happen on the day God sets His throne up in Jerusalem and reigns as the King of all the earth. I think this is, there's some prophetic implications in this psalm. He will be the great King over all the earth. When that happens, that entire area will once again be Israel's full and rightful inheritance. And by the way, that's what they're waiting on. So there's a real physical picture of redemption. Okay? But there's also a spiritual picture of redemption. Can I, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians for a moment. Let me show you the, the New Testament kind of version of this, of, of the word redemption. Ephesians chapter 1. I mentioned we've turned a lot of Scripture, so I hope you're okay with that. I'm sure you are. You guys love to, to study and read the Word of God, and that's awesome. Take good notes and, and follow with me here. Ephesians chapter 1. 
Look at verse 4. Here's the same word in the Greek context that we saw in Psalm 47 there. Look what he says, Psalm, uh, Ephesians 1.4. For He chose us in Him. Look at verse 5. He predestined us to be adopted. And when did He do this? The Bible says, before the creation of the world. I'll be honest with you, I don't get all this. I'm not sure how God can know and yet make me feel like I decide. (laughs) I don't know how God, before He ever promised Abraham the promised land, could know that through that one covenant, all the people would be blessed. And then think about a little red-headed boy in Chattanooga, Tennessee, who would by faith call on the name of the only Lord Jesus Christ to save him. I don't know how God does that, but I want to tell you, based on Ephesians 1.4, He did in Ephesians what they did in Psalm 47. He chose us. So while I don't understand it, man, i got a big thank you to God for it. Now, let's take this analogy one step further. The word inheritance here in Psalm 47, if you translate that to the New Testament concepts and the workings of God in, the, in this age, watch this. Our inheritance is heaven. It's not the promised land in the Middle East. It's the promised land up there. In fact, most of the times the word inheritance is in the Scripture, it talks about our final destination in heaven. Now, there's a couple of times the word salvation is mentioned and referenced. And I, I, and I think if you were to time together, here's what you'd find. Watch me now. I'll teach you this. While we are saved now fully, and while we are positionally there, practically speaking, we have yet to be saved from the presence of sin. Are you with me? Sin has no power over me, and sin has no penalty over me. But let's just be honest. I live in a carnal body. The sinful nature battles the, the spirit nature, as Paul talks about. And I've got the world, the flesh, and the devil all around me. Every day is a struggle. Why? Because of the presence of sin. But one day... I'll receive, the Bible calls it, the end of my salvation. So what does that mean, Todd? I'm fully saved positionally, practically, and powerfully, and from the penalty of sin. But I'll tell you something. In, in light of sin's presence, my salvation is yet to be fully complete. Until I receive my inheritance in heaven. When he says, Todd, welcome home. Salvation is done. Ain't no sin around here, baby. Wouldn't that be nice? That's the inheritance that he talks about in Ephesians 1. That's what he predestined me for. I mean, some of us think that that we're saved now. and Man, God adopted me, predestined me. This is what it's about. Technically, scripturally, it's not. He predestined you for that inheritance. When one day, He will welcome you to your promised land, to your inheritance, and say, there's no sin here. It's now complete. That would be a great day. I can't wait. Let me show you how he subdued enemies for us. Let me show you how he was, how he defeated our enemies. Look at Colossians for a moment. This kind of correlates with the, with the word subdued in, in Psalm 47. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. He talks about how we were dead in our sins and in the uncircumcision of our sinful nature, but how God made us alive. Isn't that interesting that we were dead, but who made us alive? Corbin didn't decide to wake up. He didn't say, hey God, I'm, I'm a little tired of being dead here. Uh, can we kind of make an agreement to come back to life? Man, that's, that's the whole idea of chose again. I mean, he was dead. Dead people make no decisions. They have no thoughts or desires. But, but God moved upon Corbin's heart and stirred within him 
spiritual life and gave him the gift of faith and grace and caused Corbin to believe. I don't get that. But I'm thankful for it. When that happened, watch this. Let me show you what God did. He said He made us alive and here's how that whole process happened. He said He forgave us all of our sins, canceled the written code with all of His regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities. See, there's that word there. All those other gods, little g, He disarmed them. He went up to them. He said, you have no power over those who believe. He put the old wrestling move on them. Put his foot on their chest and they cried uncle. You know what that was that stood against you, don't you? It was the law. It was your long record, Jeff, of things that violated God's Word. And if it was ever exposed, you'd never make it to heaven. And my got one too. So does Adam. See, we've all got a list like that. That, that, that record, that document stood opposed to you. It wouldn't let you get anywhere with God. That's what the law does, you know. It shows you how sinful you are. Man, I see that when I drive on the freeway. Or anyway, any road, you know. I see the, the law, 35, 45, 65, and then I look at my speedometer, I'm like, man, I'm a really wicked driver, you know. That's what the law does, you know. They show us how wrong we are. But when Christ died and presented His death as the Holy Lamb of God to God the Father, It satisfied God. That word in the New Testament is called propitiation. Satisfaction. And God said, I'm satisfied. And so from that point on, when the enemy says, Hey, Ed, you can't go to God because I know what you did and I've got it written down, buddy. He can say, but I know what Jesus did. And he nailed that to the cross. And then suddenly God looks at you and He sees you as righteous and justified because of Jesus to those who believe. Are you with me? Man, that's redemption in the New Testament. I just can picture... And, and really, the, the military usage of this word here about disarming powers and authorities, to be quite frank with you, it, it symbolizes the, the winning general marching through all those defeated armies. Kind of with a... Nah, 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 nah. He's, he's, he's marching with the... And forgive the analogy here. This is, this is scripturally and culturally true. With the, with the heads of the losing generals on a stick, you know. And they're marching, they're parading because He has won. He has subdued them and so now people are free. And that's what happened in Colossians and Ephesians. When He chose us, He defeated those enemies and now we're redeemed. All through the New Testament, all through the Old Testament, God's power and plan of redemption seems to be very evident and clear. And that's what makes Him worthy. Psalm 47. I bring you back to there again. You see how this one verse, when you look backwards and forwards, wow. Think about it from Israel's point of view and think about it from your point of view. Let's read it. He subdued nations under us. Colossians 2, Exodus chapter 6, Exodus 14 and 15. Peoples under our feet. And He chose our inheritance. Genesis 15, Ephesians 1. Wow. God truly is a God of redemption, isn't He? Now, knowing that, it makes sense then what follows. Look what he says in verse 5. God has ascended. I mean, and this is going to get pretty exciting. So if you're low-key right now, if you're about to go sleep, just hang on because you probably won't. I mean, I want you to see what's coming up. He's going to paint for us a verbal picture here. 
of the procession of God the King taking the throne. Why? Because no other God could redeem only Yahweh, only Jehovah. And He did that. He subdued the nations. He chose our inheritance. He delivered the land. So guess what? He has the right to ascend to the throne. Look at verse 5. God has ascended amid shouts of joy. I mean, that's awesome, isn't it? And typically, well, in this culture, the Jews would line up and there would be choirs on both sides and then there would be great parades of, of, of people that would be celebrating God. And he says in the next phrase, the Lord has ascended amid the sounding of trumpets. Probably there were certain tribes who had ram's horns. And, and I won't make a ram's horn sound, but you know, like, something like that. You know, it'd, it'd go off and, and the people are shouting. Maybe they're shouting, Yahweh, Yahweh. I don't know. That's kind of like Southern Hebrew, I guess. I don't know. But, you know, they're shouting. They're doing the ram's horns. And you know what's happening? God. God is, is ascending to the throne. Why? Because He's won the right to be the king. And what makes Him win? What, what gave Him the right? His power to redeem. So let's read on here. Look at this great processional. I mean, it makes that old picture of Diana's wedding. Uh, this is a little dated for some of you, I know, but uh, for some who are my age, that, that, that wedding in England where that train was about 15 miles long, you know, and, and she's marching for three or four hours to get there. And, I mean, you take any kind of installation you want of a monarch anywhere. All of that pales to this awesome ascension of God to the throne. He says He has ascended amid shouts of joy, amid the sounding of trumpets. So what do we do? We sing praises to God. So you've got some folks shouting, you've got trumpets playing, and you've got other folks singing praises to God. And then I guess the sons of Korah had some repetition issues, you know. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises. Any question about what they want you to do there? I think we understand clearly. God is being praised. Verse 7, For God is the King of all the earth. That's right. Not of just your section. Not just of your house. God is King of all the earth. He's the one and only. Sing to Him a psalm of praise. God reigns over the nations. He is seated on His holy throne. The nobles of the nations assemble as the people of the God of Abraham. That's an interesting verse, by the way. You know that uh, God called His people together. He would call His covenant people. But because we are blessed through Abraham, then Amy, you're part of that group. You're as the people of God. Isn't that awesome? You, have, you don't really have a right to do that. I mean, you, unless you are nationally a Jew, but you're a foreigner. As the Peter says, we're heathens. But because of God's grace, His covenant now is open to all who believe. I love that verse, don't you? We assemble. All the nations assemble as the people of the God of Abraham. For the kings of the earth belong to God. He is greatly exalted. So why does this incredible ascension to the throne happen? And why do the people sound the ram's horn and and clap and shout and sing praises? I bring your attention back to 3 and 4. Because in the past and in the future, God has redeemed people. Let me give it to you in a simple phrase. Can we do that? Just jot this down. He is the only one worthy to receive praise because He's the only one able to redeem people. Just jot that down. You may think, Todd, I, I, I know that. Well, that's what they were singing about in Psalm 47. That He was so awesome to subdue those nations under, their, under His feet and to bring them to the promised land so they were going to sing praise and lift His name up together. We do the same thing. God is so awesome. 
His sovereign plan is so wise that He would bring you out of the miry pit. Set your feet upon a rock. Establish your goings. Put a new song in your heart. And so we sing praise to our God. Now, let me explain to you something. You may think that's a simple sentence that you're well aware of. But there's lots of people trying to find redemption in a hundred other things. The people next to you at work. The people across the table from you at staff meeting. The guys who live across the street. The folks at the bank that you say hello to when you go to make your transactions. The people that quick trip when you put gas in your car or your truck. You realize that, that everyone's looking for redemption somewhere. I'm going to tell you why God alone is worthy. Because nobody can redeem but Jesus. Is that clear? Well, let's just be really exclusive here. Let's be narrow-minded, to the point, streamlined and focused. Nobody can save but Jesus. That's the stance of first family. That's the, the clear interpretation of Scripture. You see, Peter knew this in Acts 4.12. When he, when speaking to all those people there in, uh, in Jerusalem, what did Peter say? Which probably would have got him crucified upside down then, but he kind of escaped it and managed to get out. He said, there is no other name given to men under heaven whereby you can be saved. Only Jesus can redeem. Here's something else I find interesting. All these things that folks are looking to for redemption, they all take. Just make a mental note of this. Every one of them take. I've been watching some Scientology things with Tom Cruise and John Travolta. It's amazing the amount of money. And I'm kind of familiar with Scientology. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a false religion. It's a cult. It's a heresy of, of levels. And I hope you're okay with what I just said there. Thank you very much. It's a, it's a cult, a false religion of, of levels. And if you pay a certain amount of money and take a test and pass the test, They'll give you a certain status, a, a, a certain godlike status. You know what that is? Let me spell it for you. It's called a racket. You with me? In other words, if you pay enough money, if you, if you give to them, they will take from you, then they'll say you're okay. I think about in Mount Carmel. And that whole showdown between God and, and then the little g-gods. You know, they, they were, they, that, those little g-gods were taking... They were trying to, the, the old false prophets were cutting themselves and offering little children as sacrifices and, and still never to appease the gods, of course. And Elijah just sat back and said, put some more water on there. Do whatever you can to try. And all he did was talk to God. He just prayed. Think about other religions. Well, you've got you've to you've do so much because their God wants to take. I'm going to tell you what Jehovah God, the Redeemer, the only Redeemer does. He gives. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He, say it with me, gave. You got it. You see, I'll tell you why Jesus Christ stands alone as the only one worthy. Because in Psalm 47, He chose an inheritance and He gives. Every other redemptive idea out there is all about taking. You better give this, pay that, go there, attend here. I mean, think about our those in the in the, in the Eastern religions, the trips to Mecca, the walks on their knees. Man, my Jesus did that for me. And now the Bible says to all who will just believe on His name, if you will confess that Jesus Christ is God, 
and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. That's awesome. The great God over all the earth is the only Redeemer who gives. He's the only one who can redeem. That's why He's the only one worthy. I want to encourage you as you interact with your friends, as you invite folks into your small group, as you, as you make friendships with people outside of, of this unit here, which is great because you're establishing relationships of reconciliation. As you do that, remember, everybody's looking for redemption somewhere. Man, bring to them the great message that only Jesus can save. And it's not because of what you do. It's not because of what you pay. It's because He gave. He chose. He predestined. All you got to do is respond in faith to Him. Now, what a great God. What an awesome God. Now, lest you think that picture is just kind of then and now, I've got to add one more little brick of evidence on top of this incredible wall that we've been building this morning. Look at Revelation chapter 5 just for a moment as we wrap things up. In case you're thinking, Todd, I saw where He redeemed Israel physically. I see where He redeems me spiritually. That must make Him worthy, but... But is that kind of all there is to it now? Man, Revelation 5 and Revelation 19 tell me that when all of time is over and we're in heaven, guess what they'll be doing to praise God? Guess what one trait they'll be lifting up about Jesus Christ? Look at Revelation chapter 5. I mean, this is an awesome passage. Revelation 5, about verse 9. It says, And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? And by the way, they'd been looking for someone to do that. And no one was found. I guess Joseph Smith and, and people like this just didn't show up, did they? They're not worthy. Only one is worthy. Look what it says here. It was Jesus Christ. Why was He worthy? Because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Wow! Even at the end of time, when all of heaven, heaven's created beings, the 24 elders and all of us are singing, you'll be singing about how the Lamb is worthy because He was slain to purchase men from God. You know what the word purchase there means? Redeem. Only Jesus can redeem people. Revelation chapter 19. Look with me there. Revelation 19. Verse 1. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven. And shout this with me, this word in 19.1. They were shouting what? Hallelujah! And why were they shouting hallelujah? The universal word for worship. Why? Look at this next phrase. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. What belongs to God? Jehovah God. Salvation. Power. And glory. Can I ask you to say this with me again? It's repeated through the Bible. It's evident. It's taught. It's clear. Repeat this with me again because this teaches us what Psalm 47 is all about. Here we go. Ready? He is the only one worthy to receive praise because He is the only one able to redeem people. Jeff, I know you love your wife, but she couldn't redeem you. Jill, Steve's a, a good husband. Probably a great husband. But he couldn't save you from hell. Look around the room here at people. Dan and Rennie. you got great kids. 
but they can't keep you out of hell. They can't save your soul. I can go from person to person. And all the people and things in your life, your job, your possessions. Hey, you know, we're glad for you. But i got to tell you something. And none of them have any redemptive qualities. Only Jesus possesses the power and the plan to take you out of sin and give you an inheritance. Salvation completed in heaven one day. So my question to you is real simple. Have you let God do what God does best in your life? It's not a hard question. In other words, have you responded to His call of redemption? If you're here this morning and you're thinking, Todd, you're a mighty crazy man up there sometimes. And you see sometimes like you're just a little little hot and passionate about the Word. And man, I'm not sure I can I understand all this. But you know what? Just know that God loves you. And He provided a way for you to go to heaven through His Son, Jesus Christ. And if you'll just believe, God will begin His work in you. And, and the rest is kind of like the details. Man, I call upon you just to believe right now. In fact, Philippians 1.6 says... That God will finish the work He started. Is God calling upon you this morning to let that work start in you? To let that work begin? If you're not sure what we're talking about, if you're not sure why you would worship Jehovah God, why you would lift your hands and praise His Son Jesus, I want to say to you, trust Jesus Christ this morning. Put your faith in the only Son of God, Jesus, the Lamb of God. Let Him take away your sin. The Bible says in Romans we do that by simply confessing Him as God and believing He died and was raised again. When that happens, you know what's so awesome? God moves from heaven into the heart of a person in the Holy Spirit. By the way, you know what the Holy Spirit's called? He's the deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. Do you know that? So if you have the Holy Spirit, that's proof. That's like a down payment that the inheritance is on His way. Man, I'm just telling you something. Folks, God is able to redeem. That's why we praise Him. He's the only one worthy. If you know for sure this morning that you've been redeemed by God, let me ask you one question. Why are you giving any of your attention and worship to something else? You say, Todd, that's kind of crass. I love my wife. I love my family. I know that. And that's awesome. You should. But you should worship one thing. You should worship one person. Jesus God, just the triune God. That's it. And why? I'll bring you back to a simple thing. Who else died for you? Your boss didn't die for you. Your job didn't die for you. That nice red shiny car didn't die for you. The big house in the lake didn't die for you. I'm all for those great. But I'll tell you something. When it comes to what we worship, man, only one person's ever died for me. His name is Jesus. So He stands alone as the only one worthy of my praise. Will you join me this morning in lifting up Psalm 47? Shout to God, clap your hands to the great King of all the earth. Why? Because He subdued nations under us, peoples under our feet. He chose our inheritance for us, the pride of Jacob whom He loved. Man, God is awesome, the only one worthy, because He is the only one who can save. Let us pray this morning as we close our service.